welcome to the new Israel Bible Podcast. I am Cindy Parker. I am an author, speaker, and professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I love having geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. This is part two of my conversation with Pinchashur, who is the Associate Professor of Ancient Cultures at Israel Bible Center. Although you are welcome to jump right into this part of the conversation, you might want to go back and listen to part one in which we discuss what apocalyptic literature is and how it changes the way we read the book of Revelation. Think of it as reading something in code. In this episode, we get to talk about geography, prophecy, the Torah, and pop culture. If you like what you hear in this podcast, you will love the content in Israel Bible Center's flagship certificate program on Jewish context and culture. You can register now at israelbiblecenter.com. I am curious about the organization of the book of Revelation. In the beginning, the book opens up with a collection of letters to churches, and they sort of seem like strange Pauline letters. We're used to reading letters like Ephesians and Philippians and Corinthians, and so we understand the letter writing genre. But then Revelation introduces unusual things like a beast coming up out of the sea and dragons. And that is a whole different category than letters to a church. So what do we do with this book that contains such an unusual mix of writings? I love the way it begins. It opens up. It says, this is a revelation. So this is an unveiling of something, right? So this is a secret and I'm going to open it up to you essentially, right? And then you're like kind of sitting on the edge. These are the words of prophecy. So you're like, okay, this is a prophetic book. I know what to read now. And and then all of a sudden he says, all right, I'm here to testify. So this is going to be a testimony, you know? And, and all of a sudden there's this revelation of the Messiah right there. And he says, okay, I'm his messenger. And I got some messages before we get to the whole prophetic stuff let's settle some business. And he goes into this whole letters to all of these faith communities and explaining what's going on, what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong. It's a complicated thing because what the book of Revelation does, instead of just being a prophetic book that kind of is casting this broad nationwide kind of almost global blanket for everyone, right? It actually says, okay, forget all of you, to the city of Sardis. <laughs> right. And it's like, what, what just happened? You know, and that's more like, Pauline literature, literature, it's like Moloch's letters, he's addressing Timothy, you know, and that's it, you know, like, why not, you know, everybody else? Why like Timothy and all his friends and buddies, you know, and anybody's doing something like him? No, Timothy, my son, you know, it's yeah. like, why all of a sudden? Well, because again, these are very specific messages for very specific people. And we can't forget that, that this message was designed for a real audience in a real time and a real place. I think it's there to remind right. us that. You know, we're dealing with very specific cities who all have their own characteristics, characters, their own problems. And so amidst of this prophetic message, we have a series of letters, right. which are, by the way, most of these communities know each other. 
And it's like they're almost reading each other's mail and they're going to benefit from it anyway because they're one big family. You know, even though they're not on the same page together with everything, they still know each other. Because let's face it, frankly, how many Christ followers would there would have been at that time in that era in that place? Very few. It's a small community. They know each other. They share. They share their resources. They help each other out. They pass on information. The same teacher is traveling between those communities teaching them. So they're all disciples of the same group of people. So there's so much shared between these uh, faith communities, and they're all small. You know, we, we tend to, when we hear the word church, you know, letter to the church, this, letter to the church, that, we tend to visualize some big, huge, you know, castle-like creation with tall steeples or something like that. I mean, really, what should be what should we visualizing is my living room. Right. It's not the mega church of South Korea or Texas. Yeah, or exactly. <laughs> just, just a handful of people gathered in my living room, and we're trying to strengthen each other because in our faith, we've come to understand something, and now we're struggling to withstand a culture that wants to, you know, defeat us and take us in, away from that, you know, realization. And so it is a strange piece of literature in a sense that it, it all of a sudden you're reading a prophecy and there's visions, but then there's also these letters directed to these people. Well, and then there's commandments. I mean, think about it. You read those letters and they're very specific things that he tells them to do or not to do. And he chastises them for doing certain things. So there's a um, teaching moments. I mean, these are like, he really criticizes some of them and, and others he praises for things. So you realize that there's, these are communities that are struggling to stay within the lines, sort of say, of what's acceptable and not acceptable and and they're crossing these borders and boundaries because they're living in a new world and a new situation which in which these commandments have never really been practiced i mean it's hard to be a jew out there in the middle of nowhere where you're surrounded by non-jews and it's hard to follow a jewish faith even if you're especially if you're not a jew and you've never had to live that way you've never lived that way before and all of a sudden i'm telling you wait a minute you can't worship idols Uh, i'm sorry you can't eat this kind of meat it was sacrificed to so and so all of a sudden, you're like, uh, so what do I eat? It's complicated. And that's why all these admonitions and rewards and promises of grand, grand rewards. I mean, some of those uh, rewards that are being promised in the letters are like, wow, fantastical. I'm like, yeah. wow, this is, I want that. Right. <laughs> One of the things I really love about your course that you do very well is with these seven churches in particular, although you do this like scattered throughout the course, but as a historical geographer myself, I am always very particular to draw everyone's attention to the specifics of the place that is being identified. Mm -hmm. And you do that because there are, like you mentioned, the seven churches, they all have unique geographical context which Mm -hmm. then influences how they're interacting with the wider Greco-Roman empire that is controlling the worldview, the larger worldview around them. And I just like how you, you peel back these layers and go, let's just look at Laodicea and where their water came from before we make really weird assumptions about what lukewarm water and spitting out of the mouth actually mean. Exactly. Geography yeah. helps. I mean, and this is just, this is what I mean by by having references to real life. Knowing what life was like for these very people to whom these words are addressed, all of a sudden we're uncovered that this is a code language he's speaking. He's speaking their language to them that they can understand that we don't understand because we have never been there. We've never seen it. We never lived that life. So if we can simulate that for ourselves through the study of archaeology and geography, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, 
you know, we are entering their world world just a little bit. And when we do, now we read those words in a whole new light because yeah. the context is there that wasn't there before. Before it was some weird, strange, obscure reference to something being something. And now I actually know what it is that we're talking about. Which then makes it easier to pull out nuggets that apply to us in modern day. Right, because we have our circumstances. They had their circumstances. We have our circumstances. They're so you could different. say... If he, they're very different, but yeah. but if he was speaking to us, what would you know? What would the messenger would have picked on, sort of say, in our world? Yeah, you know, he picked on certain things in their world where he talks about the water, or he talks about the wealth, or or something else, or some great temple of some great gods out there that that are ruling their world and persecuting them. Whatever they're talking about, you know, it's is it the false prophetess? Is it the Jezebel? Is it the, you know the mysterious Nicolaitans? All these different things that they have in their context. Well, we actually kind of have some of those same things in our context. We just call them by different names, and they manifest themselves in different ways. So, yeah, you can totally take the message, the principle, the ideas that are in there, and transfer it to yourself and say, what, what do we struggle with? What are our greatest sins, sort of say, against? being faithful to that Messiah who stands between the lampstands and he says, if you don't follow, I'm just going to remove your lamp, you know, out of that menorah. If none of that imagery sounded familiar to you, well, then maybe you should sign up and take the full course at theisraelbiblecenter.com. In it, you get to explore all of those symbols. As Pinhaus says, Revelation is anchored in the Torah, So if you do not understand the Torah, then you cannot understand what is happening in this book. You have to go all the way back. You know, if you want to read about the end, you have to start from the beginning. So, yeah, these things are connected and they're connected organically and they're all interconnected. And so for somebody who's studying the book of Revelation, it's a journey and it's a long journey. It's not just like, okay, I'm going to take 15 minutes and figure it all out. There's a base of knowledge that you have to have before you can even get there. And I think people who study the Bible in a broad, broad perspective get way, way bigger impact out of reading Revelation than people who just have a very narrow sampling of what the Bible says. They actually haven't read those prophets, or they've read those prophets a long time ago, or maybe they read just little chunks and pieces, like little selections on you know, posters or Christmas cards or something like that. And to us, a child is born. And that's pretty much where oh, no. Isaiah <laughs> Isaiah ends or something like that. You know, it, it, you know, we're laughing about this, but there's a there's right. a part of the pop culture that exists. That's a biblical pop culture. And it doesn't really take you to those words of the prophets and doesn't really t- tell you what they're about. Why? Because we made up a song about it. And that's what it's really about. It's true. Yeah. Pop culture it, can hurt us big time. <laughs> Armageddon, you know, things like that. And, yes. and and now your mind is taken into every apocalyptic movie that shows the end of the world and zombie apocalypse or something like that. You know, no, like if true. all I have to say is zombie apocalypse, everybody knows what I'm talking about. And 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 it has nothing to do with biblical apocalypse, of course, but right. we keep using those words. It's wonderful science fiction. That's what yeah. it is. But it has nothing to do with the actual book of Revelation right. and with actual text of Revelation. So it's just right. kind of loosely based, interpreted through the pop culture, and then made into a movie, which is great entertainment. It's wonderful. Right. But if you're getting your, your understanding of how the world works through through movies, then you're in trouble. This part of the conversation reminds me of when I was young 
And there was a movie that circulated throughout Christian circles called A Thief in the Night. I don't remember much about the movie, but I do know it scared the living daylights out of me, which I think was the purpose of the movie to make people terrified so that they would repent and follow God. I haven't watched a movie based on Revelation since. So as I edited this episode, I decided to do a quick check to see how many more movies about the rapture and the Battle of Armageddon have been made. Fifteen. Fifteen. I had no idea these even existed. The posters for these movies suggest they are action-packed thrillers, probably a lot of fun to watch. But I am full of all kinds of skepticism regarding their underlying interpretation of the book of Revelation. Oh, and don't even get me started on the fiction books. I think it'd be safer if we get back to the conversation with Pinchas. So you mentioned that for someone who wants to study Revelation, they need to have a much wider view and start in the Torah, which I love because I always try to get everyone to start in the Torah. But you've also mentioned other books like Enoch or Baruch, which are books that are not in in the Protestant Christian canon. They show mm. up in, everyone has different canons of literature yeah. that they're appealing to, but so it's not in the Protestant one. So can you introduce us? Can you give us a little bit of a, this is what Enoch is, this sure. is what Baruch is, and like kind of a little bit of background about what these books are and what they contribute to us in understanding Revelation. There are several books of Enoch. There are several books of Baruch. They're all a little bit different, and it kind of gets complicated because different people have numbered them in different ways, depending on whose edition you're reading. So right. I'm, I'm almost tempted not to even go there because I don't, I don't want to create a confusion, and, and even in my own mind as I'm trying to sort it out right now. Yeah. But let me just say, speak in generalities, I do go over several of these books and, and explain very briefly what they're about. People who want to read them in detail and study them on their own, they're, of course, welcome. Most of them are, are actually in public domain. So whether you're reading an entry in a Bible dictionary, which is also, by the way, great, you know, a good, solid Bible dictionary. You want to know what the book of Baruch is? You know, look up Baruch in a Bible dictionary. It's going to say the book of, and it's going to give you several different entries for first, second, third Baruch, and how they're all different and, and what, what they're about. So, you know, those books are valuable uh, because they all... Uh, contain bits and pieces besides the genre, they'll contain bits and pieces of the same messages and overlaps. You know, I would be reading Baruch and I would see the words of Revelation in it. And I say, wait a minute, who copied from whom? Well, knowing the history, I can figure out that John probably read this one before he wrote what he wrote, you know, or he was influenced by it or the story he heard or something like that. And so, so I'm kind of, you know, I don't really necessarily want to go through the contents of the book, of the books because they're long and complicated. But I would say anybody can pick them up and read them. It's just uh, it's a worthwhile adventure. It's just be just be ready because it's a while. It's going to take a while. It's a lot. Even knowing that it's not it's not a short letter. Enoch is not right. It's not like Philemon, you know, that you can sit down and read really quickly. It's a much more involved and very specific. And there's like st a lot of storytelling involved, and it has the same kind of title. There can be different dates. Actually, different writers, too. Right. Uh, I, right. I, don't, I don't think the first Enoch and the second Enoch and the third Enoch and the fourth Enoch were written at all by the same writers at all. They're, and we call it Enoch literature, essentially, because they all kind of flow within the same tradition. 
but they're all not the same. The language is not the same. The message is not the same. The purpose is not the same, but they're all, they're all connected to Enoch as if going into heaven and seeing the heavenly vision. So it's all, they're all connected to the personality of an Enoch. And that's really the only thing connects them hmm. because their messages and their agendas are completely different. So yeah. one is a bit more historical and the other one's a bit more visionary. And so they're, you know, they're, they're definitely worthwhile reading. There's nothing scary in them. I know like sometimes people are being told don't read non-biblical literature, but I always ask people, do you read anything outside the Bible? Like, do you pick up a newspaper or a cell phone or, you know, do you watch TV? Like, are you forbidden to watch news on TV because it's not the Bible? You know, no, we glean our information from everything. We read novels. We, we you know, and that doesn't just, you know, all of a sudden take us into right. some unspiritual place where we now can't struggle and we have to fear for our faith. I mean, people have that fear of extra biblical literature, but if you realize that, that hey, this is historical, this is ancient, this is, yes, it's not the Bible, you know, not canonized, but it's still uh, in that same sort of, say, spirit of things, you know. Right. I mean, how many sermons do people listen to today, right? None of those pastors are the Bible. You know, they're trying to teach right. the Bible, explain the Bible, but they're not the Bible. And we're not, like, weirded out by that. We right. sorted through, right. we sifted through. So we can sift through a lot of those ancient messages too. It's just a lot more complicated. Yeah. It's a lot harder, but but I think it's worthwhile because we're trying to understand something ancient, and the only way we can understand something ancient is to go back to something sometimes even more ancient, actually. Yeah, and these books are they very specifically Jewish writings? And at what point can we start to say they're Jewish Christian writings? Some of them have been uh, edited and passed on. Like so, the history if the history of the book of the book's transmission is important. Okay, so like some books we have, and it's a and it's a Jewish book, and it was clearly written by Jewish scribes because way before Christians were around. But then what happens is it gets into the hands of Christians, and then the monks look at it and they say, "Well, this is great. Can we improve this a little bit?" And right. so there's a tendency to edit a little bit, to improve this, to add this story. Oh, really, really, this story would be really great over here. So they kind of insert things, some things they might take out, smooth out. You know, they're they're messing with their editors. And and that's, again, in the ancient world, that's normal. To us, we say infringement of copyright laws. You can't that's do that. Right. <laughs> please footnote your text. Yes. Please, please <laughs> footnote. If you make any changes, you know... Put put a footnote or whatever, or where did you get your source from? You know, this is these are our <laughs> standards of our modern twenty first century society, right? Yeah, yeah. But they didn't have those standards. They felt completely free to improve. In yeah. fact, they were looking at this community service. They're like, oh, I can make it better. I'll smooth this out. And so there's some you know things yeah. that have happened. So sometimes you get a Jewish text that was later edited by Christians, and essentially Christianized at times, you know, and it depends when and where and how to a degree. Yeah. Now, you know, as historians, we could see it because we're seeing a very, very ancient text mm -hmm. where some things are sticking out of it that it shouldn't be there. So we know that's a later edition for fact. Other times we we, we can't tell. And so we kind of have to left, left guessing. So uh, yes, there's definitely very, very Jewish text because of the way they talk. But then if you think about it, the first generation of yeah. Christians, they don't have their own identity that's distinct from Judaism. Right. right. So they're talking in the same way. So you don't really know where one stops and the other one ends and the other one begins. So there's that blurry line that scholars argue about and wonder yeah. about. 
But because you have such a massive amount of Jewish literature, you realize that it's impossible that, you know, all of these books were missed by some later generations of Christians. I mean, the ideas that they present are authentically Jewish, and they're all based in the words of the prophets. They're all based in the words of the Torah. And sometimes you know how Jewish it is by simply looking at the fact of how deep they go into Jewish conceptual world, where many Christians of the 3rd, 4th, 5th century and on, they actually didn't have access to that world anymore. They had no connection to ancient Hebrew. They couldn't read the Torah in Hebrew. The only Torah they knew was in Greek. So they couldn't see that connection that, of course, every Jew reading the Torah in Hebrew would see. Join us next week as we conclude the discussion on the book of Revelation with the Alpha and Omega, lions and lambs, a new heaven and a new earth. See, you do not want to miss out. So take three seconds and subscribe to this podcast and then leave a review so other people can find us too. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald with Mason Jar Music for mixing, editing, and crafting all of the good sounds you hear. And thanks to you for listening in and being curious about the world of the Bible. For all of you who made it past the credits, I decided to add a little special bonus cut. We recorded this before we were officially recording, but it's a really fun conversation about where the word Armageddon comes from. If you read the snippet in the book of Revelation that talks about the last big battle, the writer, the author of Revelations is really particular to talk about the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And so from that is where we get the Armageddon word, but there's all kinds of controversy over what it means. And so we sat down and talked about it off the record, but sort of on the record for you. Can I ask you about Armageddon and if it's actually Megiddo and the Jezreel Valley or if it's yeah, Jerusalem yeah. and yeah. the Mount of Olives? <laughs> okay. Well, do you know Meredith Klein's view on the whole, it being Jerusalem and not Megiddo and the Jezreel Valley? I, I don't know about that. To me, I mean, I'm a language guy, so I just look at it and say, okay, Megiddo means Megiddo. Megiddo is a city. It's a place, you know, and so what the heck does the battle of Armageddon, you know, the end yeah. times is not is not a place. Time is time and place and place. Things don't line up. Therefore, scrap this idea of world explosion, burning in fire, have anything to do with anything. We're just talking about an end time battle, you know, and, you know, like... No people, no Mad Max kind of visions, you what? know. And, oh, so disappointing. You know, I'm like very disappointing and it's great for the sci-fi industry. But, you know, um, I, I'm a language guy. I look at it and I'm like, time is a time and place is a place. We're yeah. talking about two different things. So. so Meredith Klein is also a linguist. I am, I am mostly compelled by his. He thinks that the Harmageddo in... Because John is so specific, or author, is so specific about the, in Hebrew, called thing, uh, right, right. Right? right? And so the Harmagido, and he thinks it's the mountain of the place of his gathering. Okay. Which then the matches all these Zechariah, Zephaniah stuff, which is all like gathering place of Jerusalem, which is right. kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, it could be done that, you know, it, the, there's a big question in Hebrew of what the word Gadad means, Right. okay, you know, like Megiddo, what is the root? And so if you identify the root properly, what what is the first letter of the root, basically, 
then we can get to, okay, if it's Gadad, it's one thing. If it's not, then it's something else. Right. So is the mem a prepositional? Yeah. You got it. Is it a part of the root or is it not? Because if it is, then it messes everything up. If it isn't, then it goes a whole different direction. Yeah. Well, it's fun. I, I do. I do. <laughs> I do believe that it's it's actually I do believe in this whole idea of representative, you know, kind of imagery. And I yeah. think John plays a lot with that. And so it, I wouldn't take it past him to encode more things yeah. because he's already encoding everything else. Babylon is not really Babylon. It's Rome, you know, and right. everything is something else. So why can't right. Megiddo be something else? Why can't Megiddo right. be Jerusalem? You know, why not? Yeah, yeah. Make it. He's already encoding everything else. There's so much echoing of Ezekiel, and Ezekiel is focused so much on Jerusalem and all those things. So you kind of go, oh, so why not like encode it to be like yeah. his mountain? His, why, yeah. Why are we in Galilee like, now, right? <laughs> so. Right. Where there's actually historically not so many, there's not a massive Israelite storyline connected to Megiddo. I mean, it was a significant city geographically, but it doesn't have the same powerful emphasis and depth of memory that Jerusalem has. Anyway. Makes sense. No, it makes sense. I like it. I like the idea. I mean, the idea is simple and it's workable. You know, I don't don't know how easy it is to prove with all the stuff we don't know. That's the problem. 